When I, uh, when I go out of town for two weeks, I may take a two-week vacation every couple of months. <laughs> Who knows, by the end of the year, we may quadruple our attendance. All right, a couple of announcements just to remind everybody that this Saturday morning at 11 a.m., we'll have a memorial service for Sally Davis here at West Houston Bible Church. Also, the um, annual men's campout is going to be October 20th and 21st. It's Friday night into Saturday night out at Orlando Solaces. And um, we'll have that information posted, maps and everything um, ready for that. Also a reminder on the D.C. trip in April and the Israel trip in June, and that information is posted on the website. One other thing, we sent out an announcement today, and that is that um, a lot of people have, we've we've done this three or four times just kind of by word of mouth, but we've had a uh, a tactical pistol training put on by uh, 360 Tactical Training, which is a group that used to work with the um, uh, Memorial Shooting Center up here on Whitty Road. Memorial Shooting Center uh, closed its doors last week, but the tactical training outfit still works. They train law enforcement personnel. They train civilians. They train uh, military, and they are all uh, professional in uh, what they do, and they've all done a good job. We've all ha- always had excellent instructors. This is like that. I've taken about four or five courses with them, and uh, so that's going to be November 11th. It starts at 8.30 in the morning at a shooting center down on McCard Road, which is sort of like Missouri City, way on the south side of town. And if you're interested and would like more information on that, then uh, get in touch with me. We sent out a link today so that you can register online uh, for that, for that uh, course. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we make sure we are ready uh, spiritually prepare to study God's Word. Scripture says that when we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit, but when we confess sin, God forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We're uh, restored to uh, fellowship so that we can go forward by walking in the Spirit, moving forward in our spiritual life and spiritual growth. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we're so thankful we can come together in freedom in this country to worship you, to study your word, to come to understand the truth that you have for us, and to uh, proclaim the gospel to those around us, to let them know about your love for us and sending your son to die on the cross for us and to pay for our sins so that we can have eternal life by faith alone in him. Father, we're thankful for this church, this congregation, for the impact that they have, for the people here who serve so many different capacities, helping out to make everything work. And Father, we're thankful for your grace and your goodness in providing for us. 
Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening that we might be responsive to it, that God the Holy Spirit would use it to challenge us in our own personal walk, our relationship with you and our dependence with you, uh, upon you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, as most of you know, I just got back from vacation a little over 24 hours ago, so if I start uh, saying things that don't make sense, well, we'll just chalk it up to jet lag. At least I have an excuse for one night. I'm really thankful that the uh, Lord's provided uh, good people to cover for me when I'm gone. Albert uh, White on Sundays and John, uh, I hear, did a good job the last uh, couple of Tuesday nights. And so that's always uh, good to have some, some backup so that I can get away. And it was, an, it was truly a vacation. I did not take my laptop with me which uh, had its own problems. I always take it with me, and there's always something that I um, need to get off of the laptop. And so even that happened on this trip. But the Lord provided, and we had a great time, a good time to relax and get away. One thing that was interesting, we went to Rome, we went to Florence, spent a lot of time there, and then the last three days we were there, we went to an area called Cinque Terre, which means the uh, five villages It's a region on the west coast of Italy in Tuscany. And what's unique about it is these villages were fishing villages. They're very, very old villages, and they weren't connected because it's really rugged, mountainous. They almost hang on the cliffside as the mountains come down into the uh, Mediterranean, and they weren't joined together until the railroad was built through there in the early 1900s. And when you take the train from village to village, and it only covers an area of about maybe 20 miles, but the only time you're not in a tunnel is when you're in each of these villages. And they have a tremendous hiking trail that goes and connects the, the villages, and it takes an hour, hour and a half just to walk from one village to the next. And so there are a lot of people who go just for the hiking, a lot of different nationalities. It was like the U.N. uh, walking along the trail. You heard all sorts of different languages. But as we were walking, we got to talking to two guys who were just a little bit younger than, uh, than we were who were from Florida. And they, of course, one of the first things you say is, where are you from? And we said, well, we were from Texas. And they just loved that. They, they, these two guys lived in Florida. One of them is a fireman. The, I'm not sure what the other guy does. But the guy who was the fireman said, oh, we just love Texas. And both these guys said, one of the things we noticed about Texans is that when you ask an American where they're from, if they're from the other 49 states, they'll say, we're from America. If they're from Texas, they say, we're from Texas. Texans are different. And then this one guy who was a fireman said one of the great things about Texans is how they respond to trouble. He said he was sent here as part of a uh, first responder team in 2000, and when was that, 2005, when Katrina came in, and he was detailed to the Astrodome, and he said we were just so impressed with how the church groups in Houston put teams together and came down to help out in the in the Astrodome and with all of the needs that were going on. He said, I've worked in all over the country in these kinds of situations and Texas is unique in how they respond to these things. And 
And from what I've heard in Harvey, there were people who came here from other states in the South who wanted, in fact, there was one uh, person in the church who needed to get back to her home, and there was a guy with a boat who'd come from South Carolina, and he came specifically to witness to people that he was taking to to their homes. And, of course, she said, you don't need to witness to me. I already understand the gospel. But um, uh, I wanted to put that story that he told us about how great it was to work here. And he said, I, you don't see that. You see just the opposite kind of attitude in so many other disasters. There's anger, there's bitterness, there's hatred. And then a friend of ours who is uh, uh, goes to a large Baptist church in Birmingham, uh, Alabama, uh, she and her husband are trained to work with one of these large Baptist groups that will go into areas that are hit by a, by a crisis in order to help out and provide food and help and building and wh- whatever, all kinds of different things. And they're all trained to do uh, in, in, different ki- in different kinds of skills. And she was unable to go with their team to Florida after Irma. But when their team from their church came back, they the the universal report was the people in florida did not they were angry they were bitter they didn't want to uh hear anything about the gospel they didn't want to want anything from the people that were coming to help except give me food give me water rebuild my house there was the, the, there was this universal response of just uh anger and bitterness and yet when you look at what was broadcast on the news here in Houston at the time of the hurricane, you hear people, one person after another, saying, we're just thankful to God that we survived, that we have our lives, that our family's okay, that everything worked out that God provided for us. And nobody, and you've heard me say this before, I don't think you'll hear ever hear a single national personality ever sit down and analyze what makes the cultural difference. And what makes the cultural difference, I'm convinced, isn't that everybody in Houston's a Christian, isn't it that we're a great Christian city, because we're not, but it is, there is a large impact of the gospel and uh, through many, many churches in the Houston area. And in the South as a whole, generally, there is a residual impact of Christianity and the gospel that's been lost in many other areas of the country. And that makes a difference, but it's disappearing because we have a whole generation coming up that is not being trained in the Bible in the churches. What they're getting is not Bible teaching, and they don't want it. They don't want to grow, and I hear this again and again from men I know who are professors in colleges and seminaries as uh, young people are coming in to to uh, Liberty University, to other schools, they sit there and they really don't, they just want to feel about God. They don't want to really know God's Word. And it's only the Bible and knowing the Bible and really interacting personally with what the Bible teaches and making it a part of your life that changes your life. And that's the goal in Christianity is to be saved by trusting in Christ as your Savior and getting new life in him and then growing. And that comes only through the knowledge of the word. And we see that again and again and again. Well, let's continue our study 
on Psalm 18 as we're transitioning on Tuesday night from our study of 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel. Remember the context of Psalm 18 is that David has now become king. God has delivered him from his enemy Saul, which is what is described in the opening in the superscript. For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, and so this is where we begin. So tonight, what the focus will be as we get from verse 3 into the body of of, uh, Psalm 18, I was hoping I would make it down through verse 15, but guess what? There's a lot here, very interesting material here, even though it seems that you can go cover it very, very rapidly. There's just some, uh, some kind of fun stuff to dig out. But the main idea here in verses 13 through 15 is a report of how God answered his prayer and delivered him from his enemies. So for title, I've selected the statement that God answers prayer. So I just read the opening superscription in verse in the what is actually verse one in the Hebrew text, and to remind you of the theme that this is a thanksgiving psalm. The psalmist expresses the, his gratitude and his joy and praise for the Lord's miraculous deliverance by explaining the circumstances of his distress and the merciful response of God to his pleas for deliverance. He is teaching us how we are to give thanks to God for his deliverance and how we are, we'll see in the psalm, how we pray for that deliverance, how we think about God where we're in the midst of crises. And it's all about thought. It's not about emotion. Now, there's a lot of emotion here. We're not saying that Christians don't have emotions. But it's the content of the word and the content of your thinking that shapes your emotions rather than looking at a crisis and getting all upset and anxious and fearful or discouraged and depressed. We look at what God is doing in the process of these events and these circumstances to change us and to mature us and and, in by reading the psalm, we see an example of how a believer is to think through these kinds of situations in life. And so he begins, as we saw in the first verse, he states his love for God. This isn't the normal word for love. It is a an unusual love that is really a strong, passionate word for love. He says, I will passionately love you. Some translations have put it that way. Uh, O Lord, my strength. And this is almost part of his conclusion because of how he has seen God work in his life. This has strengthened him. He's matured him. We've studied through this period in David's life from uh, 1 Samuel 16 when he is anointed by Samuel. We've seen all of the many tests that God took him through, the initial test with Goliath, the various tests dealing with all of his uh, various enemies, those who sided with Saul, and of course Saul himself who was seeking David's life. And in this 
these times, and there were dark times, times when he was held as a prisoner by Achish and Gath, times when he was, uh, he thought that perhaps he would be captured and killed by the Philistines, as well as times when he thought he'd be captured and killed by Saul. And God is the one who strengthened him. And he calls God his strength, and it's a noun, as I pointed out, that refers to military strength. And that fits the context because God delivers him in a military sense from his enemies who were seeking to uh, kill him. And then last time we looked at all of these different metaphors that are used to describe God as our protector. He's our rock, our fortress, our deliverer. And then in the next line, in the in the English, in verse 2, we read that God is called uh, my rock in, in verse, at the beginning of verse 2, the Lord is my rock. I've got using a New American Standard now, and New American strand, Standard translates this second word as my rock, even though even though other versions use a different term, it is a term for rock, but they're two different words in the Hebrew for rock, and so I'm translating it my foundation stone because this is a significant word that is used, and since uh, the last time I went on and I did some additional th- uh, thinking about this and looking at its usage, in Exodus 17.6, we re- read that um, this is when uh, the Israelites were, had left Israel. They're complaining about water in the desert, and they're, com- they're calling upon Moses to, to take them back to Egypt because they're just going to die of thirst in the desert. And so Moses turns to God to deliver them, and... <clears throat> God gives him this instruction in Exodus 17:6. He says, "Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock." And it's the same word, the second word for rock, in um, in Psalm 18:2, "Tsur." I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and the water will come out of it that the people may drink. Now that rock is identified as being spiritually significant when we get to the New Testament. Because in 1 Corinthians 10.4, Moses said they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So they drank of this spiritual rock. Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 10 refers back to Exodus 17.6. And so it identifies this rock, that this rock stands for Christ, who is the one who provides uh, water for a thirsty soul. He is the one who supplies our needs. We also learn in 1 Peter 2.8 that Jesus is referred to as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There's an identification made in the New Testament that Jesus is this rock. And I'm wanting, what I did the last time, and I'm doing it in a little more precise way tonight, is showing this connection between the rock, who is a God in the Old Testament, and Jesus, who's this foundation stone for the church. Matthew 16, 18, we went through this passage last time. Very well-known passage where Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? 
And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And then Jesus said, and I say to you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, I just got back from the Vatican, and everything that you see there, those of you who've been there, is all about the Pope and the the, uh, papal lineage from Peter, and Peter is the rock, and so the, the papacy is that ongoing papal lineage, which is just a total misunderstanding, misinterpretation of this particular passage. Jesus is not talking, a lot of times even among Protestants, you'll say that on this rock refers to the statement that Peter just made, the confession of faith that Jesus is the Messiah. Others will say the rock refers to his faith, but Jesus is talking about himself. We can't see what his hand gestures were, but it is I believe likely that he is pointing to himself on this rock. He's claiming that he is this rock. He's connecting himself. All these other passages in the New Testament talk about Jesus as the rock. He is the one he's talking about. When he says, and on this rock, he's talking about himself. He is the rock. And he says, on this rock, because he is, as we saw back here in 1 Peter 2.18, he is the rock. He's the stumbling stone. He's the rock of offense. But in other passages, he's the cornerstone. He's the one that the church is built on. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail. Now, this artist's depiction there shows this rocky escarpment at Caesarea Philippi, which is the backdrop to where, where Jesus is teaching. Yes, I did pick up a little bit of a cold when I was gone. I'm still getting over the dregs of it. It is this huge rocky escarpment. So Jesus has this play on words that, 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 that's going on in this particular statement. Now, that's the artist depiction of it, but this is what it looks like. It's just this enormous rocky escarpment and that Jesus is using, and these holes that you see here were thought by the Greeks to be the gates of Hades. This was called also called banyas. And uh, that's what it's called now in Arabic because they can't say P. So remember, I told you this last time, they're not Palestinians, they're Palestinians because they can't say P's. So this was really the temple to the god, the Greek god Pan. And this was the entry to Hades. So when Jesus says, he's standing right there, and he says, on this rock, so we're talking about this big rock around him, he says, on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, can't uh, can't uh, destroy it. So we have to connect it back to the Old Testament. We go back through all these different passages. Psalm seventy-eight, thirty-five. Then they remembered that God was what? Their rock. Sure, that's the same word, the second word that's translated rock in Psalm 18, 2. Then they remembered God was their rock and the Most High God their Redeemer. Psalm eighteen forty-six. Later on in Psalm 18, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock. Deuteronomy 32.30, how could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them? Again, a reference to God as the rock. 
And then this is clinched in the next verse, for their rock, that is the gods of the pagans, their rock is not like our rock. God is the rock for Israel. Psalm 62, 2, he only is my rock and my salvation. So when we talk about the rock, that gives us this image that this, not, not just not just some small rock, not something we can lift up, but this huge foundation stone that is Im- totally immovable and impregnable. And then in the opening part, David comes to this conclusion as a result of understanding who God is, he knows that he can pray to God and God will answer his prayers. He says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. He comes to understand after thinking about the Lord. See, this is the process. When we get involved in any level of adversity, whatever the problem is, when we get involved in that level of adversity, it could be a medical problem, it could be a financial problem, it could be the result of a flood, which involves finances and health and all kinds of other things. It can be any area of life. Our response is to call upon the Lord. Prayer is the response, and prayer is a communication vehicle whereby we take those spiritual skills that we've talked about. Confession is part of prayer. Then we talk about the faith rest drill where we're claiming promises, mixing promises with faith. We're saying, Lord, these are the promises you've given me, and we identify the promises and claim those. That's part of prayer. Grace orientation is we're thinking through God's uh, unmerited favor to us as we're praying. That's what we see a lot in these psalms. We're, We're expressing that through prayer. We express all of these different spiritual skills through prayer in in many cases so that's what david is saying here the response is focus first on god when we recognize god is this huge foundation stone he's our fortress he's our shield he's our defender when we understand that then our problems begin to minimize they get in perspective we don't that doesn't mean they're going to go away uh, usually when we hit problems There's going to be one of three ways God's going to handle it for us. First of all, he will deliver us out of the adversity. He will take us out of it. That may mean death. Okay, he just takes it. That's it. We die. We're out of it. Second way, he delivers us through it. It doesn't change. The circumstances don't change. But God is going to provide for us in the midst of that adversity. Or he's going to deliver us from the adversity, and he's going to take that adversity away from us. So those are the three ways that God answers prayer. And a lot of times we think that what it means is God's just going to make the the bad circumstances go away. Well, we all know that's not reality. But God is going to strengthen us and sustain us, and that those negative circumstances are designed to teach us, to strengthen us, and to mature us in our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. So David comes to a conclusion here, and he says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. 
so shall I be saved from my enemies. Now, there's a few things we have to understand here. First of all, he says, I will call upon the Lord. And that is, in the, in the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word kara. It's an imperfect tense. Now, Greek doesn't work like, like, I mean, Hebrew doesn't work like Greek. In an imperfect tense, in this kind of construction, this is usually taken to be a, a, future, uh, a future tense. But it's not a future tense, or shouldn't be understood that way. It um, probably, in this verse, is expressing uh, a habit in Paul's life, that this is what he does. He calls upon the Lord. So it shouldn't be translated, I will call, as if he's facing in, so this is what I'm going to do in the future. He is saying, I call upon the Lord. This is my normal procedure whenever I go through uh, difficulty. Uh, A second way it could be understood is that whenever I cry or call upon the Lord, then he saves me from my enemies. But I think the first is most likely that he states this is what he does. This is his standard operating procedure. This is what he has learned as he's gone through these various trials and tests uh, during this time when Saul's been persecuting him. He says, what works is that I call upon the Lord and he delivers me. He is the one who is uh, worthy to be, and because of that, and it really doesn't say who is worthy in the Hebrew. It just says, I will call upon the Lord who is praised. And so the translators have tried to capture the significance of this. I call upon the Lord because he's the one who intervenes, so I should praise him. He is the one who should be praised. And this is the Hebrew word halal. Now, you've heard me talk about this. There's a group of psalms from Psalm 113 to Psalm 117 called the Halal Psalms because these are Halal Psalms rather these are the psalms that are praise psalms and you see um, it, they focus on praising God this is an interesting word its etymological root has to do with uh, bringing light it has the it's used in the sense of praising or boasting or magnifying something or extolling something, but the root meaning for the word is to shine. And it's interesting that it is used in the title that is translated Lucifer in Isaiah fourteen twelve. Actually, Isaiah fourteen twelve doesn't use the word Lucifer. Lucifer is a sort of a made up name from the Latin that translates this word into lux or light. And so that's where the name Lucifer comes from. In the Hebrew, it actually says Halel ben Shahar, the bright sun of the morning, okay, which is the, ought to be the morning star. And so this, uh, as a name in Isaiah 14, 12, it's a hapax legomena, which means it's only used that way one time in the Old Testament. So the root has to do with shine, and so praise puts the spotlight on God. That's how the, the word develops in, in terms of its, of its significance. And it mean, praise means to talk about the importance of God. Now, if you were listening to what I was teaching, 
on Psalm 19 uh, while I was gone in the first lesson. I talked about Isaiah 6. There's a lot of connections between Psalm 18, Isaiah 6, and Psalm 19, as we'll see. But in Isaiah chapter 6 talks about the glory of God. And the glory of God is a difficult term to express. The Hebrew word has the idea of something that is weighty or something insignificant. It has to do with God's importance, that nothing is more important than God. And that's the the significance. So because God is so important, he is the one who rules the universe, then he is worthy to be praised and magnified. And we are to talk about the importance of God and the greatness of God and what God has done in our life. So because God answers prayer, we're to talk about how God answers prayer, not in a shallow, superficial way. So many people do that, and we just sort of flippantly have these little uh, jargony expressions, well, God answered that prayer, but it's, it's like hallelujah. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word from hallel, Hallel means to praise, the command to praise. If you're commanding a group of people to praise, you would say hallelujah. The you indicates a plural audience, so it's y'all praise. It's a command for everybody to praise. And Yah is the first syllable in the name of God, Yahweh. So hallelujah means to praise God. You don't praise God by saying hallelujah. You praise God by doing what David did and describing what God has done for you, how your, what your circumstances were, what the situation was, how God intervened, what God did to specifically to answer your prayer. In other words, there's detail and specificity to it. It's not something that is just uh, simple and superficial where we're just skipping over the surface and we use these little trite cliches and say, well, praise God, God answered my prayer. That isn't cutting the ice. That's not what real praise is. Real praise is doing what Paul does in the Psalms. So I encourage you, Read the Psalms. You read the Psalms day in and day out. That language affects how you will think and how you will express yourself in prayer. Now, we're not going to elevate ourselves to the same level as as David because we're not inspired by the Holy Spirit. But we are. it will impact the level and teach us how to pray and how to uh, praise God. So he says, I will call upon the Lord, who's worthy to be praised. And then he concludes, so I shall be saved from my enemies. And this is the Hebrew verb yasha, which is the same word used in the name of Jesus, Yeshua. It refers to salvation. It can refer to spiritual salvation. In other words, moving from spiritual death to spiritual life which is the result of putting faith in Christ alone. And when we have faith alone in Christ alone, then we are eternally delivered from the penalty of sin, and we are then born again. But the word yesha, like other words for deliverance, also refers to physical deliverance. It can refer to physical deliverance from enemies, and so it's still translated saved, I shall be delivered from my enemies, or it can sometimes be translated healed because you're delivered from an illness that would uh, possibly lead to death. 
And so this is, uh, this is David's conclusion as he begins, I will call upon the Lord. Why? Because of who God is, because he is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the one in whom I take refuge. So he's worthy. We should pray to him. If he's all these things, then he is worthy of our prayer and we will call upon him and he will deliver us. And so the way he expresses himself through the, the grammar here is to express this as something he normally does. I call upon the Lord. He's worthy to be praised. So I will be saved again and again from my enemies. Now that's the introduction. Those are the first three verses that introduce the th- main theme of this psalm, that David is going to be delivered as a result of his dependence upon God, which is expressed through prayer. Now, in the next verses, set of verses, from verse 4 through verse 15, David describes God's supernatural intervention uh, to deliver him from the enemies which threaten his life. And the language that he used is extremely dramatic. It's picturesque. It's metaphorical. He, u- he, he also is able to pull back the curtain for us so that he can depict the power of God as it reaches into space-time history and to intervene into the circumstances of our life. And so we see this in this group of verses, 4 through 15, and then he will go on to talk more about the details of that uh, from 16 on. And so this first section, he begins by simply describing his disastrous uh, circumstances, that death and destruction seem inevitable. He's constantly hounded by these enemies, not only enemies internally, within Israel, Saul and all of his allies, but also externally with the the Philistines. And so he's hounded day in and day out. He has a thousand people or more to to take care of and provide for. And yet it seems like uh, every time he turns around, his life is being threatened. So he is uh, describing those circumstances in very vivid ways. Let's look at what goes on here. He says, the pangs of death surrounded me. Now, let's see how the New American Standard translates this. Normally, I use a New King James Version, but the binding on my Bible has just about fallen apart. And so I had it sent off to get rebound right after I left uh, before I went on vacation. It's not back yet, so I'm I'm going to use this. I keep this secondary Bible up here just in case. It's a New American Standard, and I haven't checked the translations or compared them uh, while I was doing this. I was just basically working with the Hebrew, uh, but the New American Standard translates this, the cords of death, which is a, a, a better translation than the New King James, pangs of death. The word that, as we'll see, there's a word that means ropes or cords or line. Uh, it's that idea that he's tied up. So the cords of death encompassed me in the New American Standard, and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. Well, we'll see that really has a more significant sense to it than the floods of ungodliness. I I don't think ungodliness is a good translation there. And then verse 5 says, The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death 
confronted me. Now think about those verses a little bit. One of the things we should look at when we're reading a psalm is the the poetry that's involved. And as I've pointed out before, in Hebrew poetry, you don't rhyme words, you rhyme ideas, and you have different kinds of parallelism. Synonymous parallelism takes place when you just, the second line just echoes the first line with, diff, says the same thing, but with different words using synonyms. Then you have something called an emblematic parallelism where the second line says something in addition to the first line. Uh, For example, in the first line of verse 4, it says, The pangs of death surrounded me, and the floods of, we're going to call it chaos for now, the floods of chaos or the floods of wickedness made me afraid. So the second line adds something. It adds the results of this situation. The result is fear. He is fearful as a result of the circumstances of the cords of death and the floods of wickedness. Verse 5 repeats very closely verse 4. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. So you have the, the same idea there. And you have, in fact, in the Hebrew, the word for sorrows and the word that's translated pangs, these are really the same word in Hebrew, okay? Now, it really gets confusing when they don't uh, translate them consistently in English. You miss the connections. So here it's the cords of death. Here it's the cords of Sheol. That tells you that Sheol and death are synonymous. So we're going to talk a little bit about what Sheol means because there's basically three meanings in Hebrew. One meaning is death, one meaning is the grave, and another meaning happens to be the place where people go uh, after death. So Sheol doesn't always refer to the place where the dead go after they're dead. Sometimes it just simply refers to the grave or it simply refers to death itself, and we see that here. So he is just uh, very vividly expressing the same thing that that he's being threatened by death. The cords, it's the cords, it depicts a straitjacket idea that, that it's inescapable and there's no way he's going to get away from this. So he felt completely trapped and hemmed in and death would be the only solution. And then it ends uh, talking about the snares. Snares of death confronted me. But this word translated sorrows here, um, we'll, we'll see, is, is a little bit uh, uh, a little bit different. Okay. Okay. The pains where ta- I then I want to go to a parallel passage, similar passage in Psalm 116.3 that expresses very similar ideas. Uh, you might want to hold your place here in Psalm 18, and let's turn over to Psalm uh, 116 for just a second. In Psalm 116, we see close parallels with Psalm 18. The psalmist is not identified in Psalm 116. He starts the same way, at least it looks that way in the English. He says, I love the Lord. Remember in Psalm 18, it started off 
He says, I love the Lord. I love you, O Lord. The, two different words for love, though. In Psalm 116, it's a hav, which is your normal word for expressing love. He says, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. That's basically the same thing that David has said in these first three verses. I love the Lord because he answers my prayers. He listens to me. God answers prayer. James says we have not because we ask not. But God always answers our prayers. He loves the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications when I call out to him. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. See, that's the same idea that David's getting across in Psalm 18. We need to pray to God when we face these crises. And then he expresses the same thought in Psalm 116.3, the cords of death surrounded me and the terrors of Sheol. And here the word that's translated pangs, I guess King James uh, English really liked that word pangs. It's this word I have in this box on the right. It's metzar. And what you should notice is that the Hebrew's really confused there, but you won't mention that. Something happened with my computer yesterday, and every now and then I caught it reversing a Hebrew word. But metzar is the correct way to read it. And metzar is a uh, prefix M plus that word sar. Sar is the word for distress. If you look at Psalm 18.4, or excuse me, 18.6, he says, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. That's that word, sar. Now, you miss this in the English, but what the, what the writer is doing is trying to connect certain dots for us. And when we use all these different synonyms in English, we lose, lose that. He says, The tsar of Sheol... The distress of Sheol laid hold of me. I found Sarah. See that T-Z-A-R is the root there. He's connecting these ideas. The trouble of Sheol laid hold of me, the threat of death. I found trouble or distress and sorrow. So back to Psalm 18. So the pangs, that is the cords or the ropes of death surrounded me and the floods and that's the Hebrew word nachal, which means a torrent. It has the idea of a wadi. A wadi, in, in Texas, we'd call it a dried-out stream bed. And then when you get a six-inch flash flood, all of a sudden it's a 20-foot torrent, and it's just going to wipe you out, and everything just is chaotic, much as we experienced when... All the rain came down in Hurricane Harvey, and, and people just one minute, they, the water was eight feet from the house, and the, minute, and the next minute they had four or five feet of water in the house. The, the, the floods just come, and that's how trouble comes sometimes. It's just instantaneous. And the floods of ungodliness, and I've translated it, it's the chaos of evil. Evil brings chaos into culture, into society, into the world. And the Hebrew word that's translated ungodliness doesn't really mean ungodliness at all. It's the word Belial. Now, you've heard me mention that. You've heard the uh, phrase sons of Belial. So that's what we're going to conclude with tonight is what the Bible teaches about SOBs. 
that's sons of Belial. And this is a frequent term that we find in the Old Testament to refer to certain kinds of individuals. And as I started digging around a little bit and reading about this, I thought, this really holds a lot of application for today. Because you see, David is threatened not simply by torrents of ungodliness. He is threatened by people who have given themselves over to evil. And the evil that they've given themselves over to is an evil that is destructive of society and destructive of order. It's an evil that brings social chaos and destruction with it. And that's exactly what we see going on in our country and in our culture. And so this is a tremendous term to use to describe what's going on. We have a lot of SOBs in this country sons of Belial, who are bringing chaos into the world. So first of all, Belial is a term that describes acts of wickedness or evil that results in the breakdown of social order. Yesterday was Columbus Day, and it was nice to have a president who came out and was not apologetic about Columbus. And of course, there's a little piece of Texas that really belongs in Southern California. And their city council passed a resolution last week that they were going to call it uh, Indigenous Peoples Day. And if you read their resolution, and this has happened in Los Angeles and Berkeley and some other liberal uh, strongholds in America, where they're rewriting history. And, and this is so tragic because we have such a, a vacuum of knowledge about uh, what happened with Columbus and the coming of Europeans that, that they're able to influence people who just don't know any better. And that, that's really sad. So there needs to be a level of information. What exactly happens? Because, because what you, the irony of this, have you all thought about this irony of uh, the liberals being upset about Columbus Day. See, Columbus Day is all about celebrating the, 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 the reality of European immigrants and refugees freely coming to a borderless country. And, right? And the liberals are all about open borders. And let's let all the refugees and immigrants come here. But Columbus started all that, so he was evil. Can you follow the logic? There is no way to follow that kind of a logic. It just doesn't work. So, so let me give you just some things to, to, to think about with this, is that if you go back in the history of North America, there were peoples that came across a land bridge from Siberia to Alaska and migrated down through North America, Central America, and South America, and these various aboriginal people, people are referred to now by the politically correct term Native Americans. I don't like politically correct terms, so I'm going to call them Indians. I'm not going to change. It is not a racist term. It was a, a term that was applied because Columbus thought that he had actually found India. 
And so it was just a, a misidentification. But they didn't go around calling themselves Native Americans. In fact, they used the term that most of these tribes used to refer to themselves was they were the people and everybody else were not. They were the, as the French put it, the étrangères, the, the strangers. See, this happens in culture after culture. We're the, whatever the culture is, they're the people and everybody else is the strangers. They're the, they're the enemies. And they, they had a good reason to think of everyone else as an enemy because every, all the other tribal groups were attacking them. And so from what we've discovered from the ruins, if you've ever been to Mesa Verde, you've ever been out to Utah to some of the cliff dwellers, you've heard the stories about these uh, very early Aboriginal peoples who lived up in the, uh, up in the cliffs, and they built these uh, incredible dwelling places up there, and they're usually referred to simply by the word the Anasazi, which refers to the old people, the ancient ones. And, and according to what I was reading on the Smithsonian website t- uh, today, they arrived between about 100 B.C. and 1300 that's when they flourished, was between 100 B.C. and about 1300 A.D. And we don't know a lot about them. And uh, it's interesting that some of the Pueblo people, some of the Navajo people have some secret rituals and secret stories that they pass on from generation to generation, but they're forbidden to tell anybody. So most of what we know is is figured out, and a lot of that means it's guesswork. But they basically... It's been discovered and admitted to now by historians. What some of us have been saying all along is what destroyed them was was basically violence, warfare, and cannibalism among themselves. Okay? These weren't the wonderful, uh, innocent uh, native. They were evil, wicked people just like all fallen people are. And they were pushed out of their territory by immigrants that were coming in and wanted their land. And those immigrants are usually known by tribal names we're more familiar with. The Incas down in Peru, they moved all the way down to the south. The Aztecs, many others. The Aztecs were cannibals. The Aztecs would go out and conquer all the other uh, Indian tribes in Mexico, and then they would cap- bring their captives back to Mexico City, and they would kill them in ritual sacrifice, which involved cannibalism. They worshipped demonic forces. This was also true with the Algonquin tribes in the northeast in Ohio, Pennsylvania, on up through New York and New England and all through through Canada. Now, many of those groups did not arrive until the time of Columbus or even much, much later. For example, the Comanches and the Apaches didn't get into the areas where we think of them, the Apaches in the southwest, the Comanches in Texas and on up through Oklahoma and into uh, Colorado, did not come into those areas until the 1600s and 1700s, long after after Columbus, and they were driving out whoever was there before them, and they were slaughtering them and killing them. And so this is the cycle of civilizations, is that one people becomes so degraded in their culture that they uh, lose the ability to defend themselves, and they're overrun by uh, by the next culture. And so this happens time and time again. 
And one of the things that we see in history is that there's a breakdown in the cohesiveness of that culture, usually because of sin and perversion, and this is the evil that destroys them from the inside. So when we look at the definition of Belial as an act of wickedness or evil that results in the breakdown of social order, we have to think, what does the Bible teach about social order? And that always should bring to our mind the five divine institutions. First of all, personal or individual responsibility. We're accountable to God. God is the ultimate authority. This is seen in the Garden of Eden. Also, before the fall, we have marriage. God created marriage, ordained marriage, to be between one man and one woman. The man was the authority, and the woman is created to be his helper. That does not mean the man is superior to the woman. They're both in the image and likeness of God. But like any organization, one is a designated leader, the other is the support team. You have that in everything in life. Just try to go to your uh, whatever company you work for, and say, tomorrow uh, you're going to be the boss. just doesn't work that way. There is always a designated leader. That doesn't mean they're better. Excuse me. Uh, then there's a the family. The parents are the authority. They're the leaders. Parents, that's your job. You're the leader. You're not to be the, your kid's friend. You are the one to train them and to teach them so that they will be successful adults. That's your job, successful in their spiritual life, successfully able to negotiate the devil's world. Fourth, we have the government, governing authorities that are established by God. And fifth, nationalism. Now, nationalism has good senses and bad senses, okay? Now, we're not talking about some kind of ethnic nationalism. We're talking about the reality that God established and ordained nations, tribal groups. Acts 17.26, it started at the Tower of Babel. And so nations are to be um, units that work to protect and defend the people within their their country within their nation or their or their tribal group and it's just like and you organize for all kinds of purposes for protection for security to get things done if you live in um, in a more primitive environment then you have just cities or villages and towns and they develop organization in order to take care of trash and provide food, take care of the elderly, things of that nature. So that's all part of fourth and fifth divine institution. But what happens when evil is allowed to free reign, then it breaks down those divine institutions. And that's what we see today. Personal responsibility is attacked so that individuals aren't held accountable for the decisions that they make. Children are not held accountable for the bad decisions that they make. Adults aren't held accountable. Instead of punishing them, we try to rehabilitate them, and that's all based on a failure to understand that the basic problem is sin. Marriage is attacked. We've all aware of how marriage is being subverted today. Uh, Everybody says that the, isn't it great, the divorce rate's going down. Well, the divorce rate's going down because nobody's getting married anymore. 
They just go live with somebody until they decide they don't want to live with them anymore, and then they go live with somebody else. And so since there's no legal marriage, there's no necessity for divorce. So the divorce rate's going down, but that's just uh, a misrepresentation of the problem. Uh, you also have homosexual unions, and more and more, if you dig for information, you discover that homosexual marriages are much, much less stable than heterosexual marriages. And uh, the fam- third, the family is breaking down uh, over and over again, and government is breaking down. Just look at what goes on in Washington, D.C. Now, government's always had a problem. So you can always find quotes from different people in different generations about, you know, the problems, the irresponsibilities, and the overspending of of government. But sometimes it gets much, much worse, and that's when those governments and those nations collapse, and that's when they are defeated militarily, and that's when they go through a transition to some other form of government. I I can't even count the number of governments and the number of republics that France has had. I can't count that high. Uh, Fifth, nationalism is breaking down. And it's interesting that with this president, there has become this focus on nationalism between Bannon, who's involved with Breitbart, and others. There's all of a sudden nationalism becomes a bad word. Why is nationalism a bad word? Because the contrast is, if you hear somebody talk about it, question I want to ask is, okay, if you don't believe in nationalism, what do you believe in? The only alternative is internationalism. Well, if you're going to uphold internationalism, how then do you govern in an, in a totally open border situation? Then we can always take him back to why do you not like Columbus anymore? Because, you know, he was... He was opening the border, so catch him on some horns of the dilemma. But that's what's happening is when sin is allowed to go unchecked and we have all of this perversion, this is what takes place. So second point is unchecked sin and evil are self-destructive and destroy cultures and nations. Now, pagans in the ancient world understood the power of chaos. In fact, they deified chaos and death because they understood how chaos destroyed cultures and people, and it was they couldn't control it. And as a result of this, what we see in some of the language in this psalm is that David is showing that it is God that controls the chaos. And, and there is chaos in the Satan's world because Satan can't control it. I think a brilliant observation that Lewis Berry Chafer made in his systematic theology is one of the great evidences of Satan's inability to, to make good on his claim to be God is that he can't control uh, five billion autonomous volitions. And everybody on the planet wants to be God. And he can't control it. And so chaos, he can't bring about world peace because of sin. And so what David is saying, there's a subtle argument all through this psalm, is that only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, only Yahweh can answer prayer and bring order out of chaos and conquer death. Fourth thing we see here is that the wicked are self-absorbed 
and their behavior will destroy society. Now, when we go through and you just read through Scripture and a number of the things that are said where this phrase Belial is used is very interesting. Those who are described as Belial uh, don't care about the poor. They care about their own wealth. They care about their own money. They care about their own security. They don't really care about the poor. Now, this is what happens with, with a lot of people in government. They talk a good talk, but at the end of the day, they're the ones who have gained in wealth, not just in government, but also in business and many other areas. This is why uh, the prophets of Israel uh, brought an indictment from God, not against the government. It's not the government's job to uh, equalize the wealth, but because they did not take care of the poor on an individual basis. They were too concerned about themselves. And so Deuteronomy 15.9 talks about the Belials or the ones who don't care about the poor. And Judges 19.22 and Judges 20.13, through that whole section of Judges, this is that horrendous story about uh, the prostitute who gets gang raped uh, in Gibeah, which is later Saul's hometown, and then she is a concubine uh, to a Levite, and he, after she's killed in this gang rape, he cuts up her body into 12 parts to send those body parts out to the 12 tribes of Israel in order to create the same kind of reaction that you're just creating. Look at the horror of what has happened to this woman to, as a call to arms to uh, destroy these Benjamites who are so perverted. And they are described in Judges 19.22 and Judges 20.13 as perverted men. That's the translation. But the Hebrew is they're sons of Belial. Their wickedness, their unrestrained sexual lust has brought about destruction on, on this nation. It's used to describe the sons of Eli. Uh, remember them. They would uh, want when when women came to the temple. They instead of taking a sacrifice, they wanted to have sex with them, and so they were sexually abusive. They were called sons of Belial. In First Samuel twenty five seventeen, we read about um, Nabal, who is um, remember he's married to Abigail. We studied this not long ago. And he's considered a fool. He's called a scoundrel in the text, but it's a son of Belial. And he is wicked, and it leads, it's unrestrained sin, and it led to his self-destruction. Then there were two, uh, two men who were also called sons of Belial in 1 Kings 21.10 who became false witnesses, broke the 10th commandment, uh, or 9th commandment, and were false witnesses against um, uh, Naboth. To so that King Ahab could steal his vineyard. And so we see the same kind of thing today where the government comes in and decides to uh, take the citizens' land uh, away from them, and, and on it goes. So the conclusion is that these sons of Belial are those who ultimately reject the God of the Bible and live in moral rebellion against the creator of the universe. And when you do that, it destroys the culture. Deuteronomy 13.13 13 says this, Corrupt men, that sons of Belial, 
corrupt men have gone out from among you and enticed the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods. So when you have people in a culture that are saying, we need to worship something other than the Christian God, they are the source of destruction. They are the sons of Belial. They are the ones who are the perverted men that are described in Judges 19 and 20. They are the ones that will lead to destruction. And that's what David feels here in, in, <clears throat> as he talks about this in, in uh, uh, Psalm 18.4, that the floods of chaos, uh, are, that literally the, uh, the, the floods or the waters of the chaos of evil, the, the Belial, made me afraid. That's the consequence. So we'll come back next time, get into the rest of it, and talk about uh, Sheol a little bit, and we'll begin with what the Bible teaches about Sheol. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, and we pray for our nation because we know that our nation is filled with so many who are enemies of truth, they're enemies of God, they're enemies of the Scripture, and they seek to bring about what they think is order, but will indeed bring absolute chaos and destruction upon all of us. And Father, the only solution for us as individuals is to walk with you, to grow to spiritual maturity, and to learn to trust you, because if um, unless you intervene and the course changes dramatically back to you, we know that we could be in very, very dark times. And Father, we pray that you would uh, strengthen us, encourage us, and that we might be challenged to be like David, focusing on the reality of these circumstances around us, but that knowing that no matter how bad these uh, floods of the chaos of evil might be, it is your shield that will protect us, and you are the rock of our salvation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.